Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. Hey everyone, I am here at the Wise.io offices with the CTO, Joshua Bloom, and we got a great conversation lined up for you. Uh, and we'll start with Josh, why don't you introduce yourself to the audience here? Uh, great. So this is Josh, and I am a CTO and, and one of the co-founders of Wise.io. I'm also a professor at uh, UC Berkeley in the astronomy department. Um, one of the, I think, important things that we'll touch on today is how does somebody go from astronomy and teaching to uh, building a AI application company? Uh, it's, I, I think, a big part of the origin story of, of course, of the company is 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 my history, uh, but I think it also has some interesting uh, lessons for how we think about uh, AI in, in production systems and and why having diverse backgrounds is uh is pretty important these days yeah that's uh a lot of good stuff to talk about there why don't we start by learning a little bit more about you and your background and uh how you got to where you are so i was trained as a physicist and an astronomer um went to uh harvard as an undergrad and uh caught a bit of the research bug over over the summers working in los alamos uh, then went to uh, Cambridge, England to do a master's and back to Caltech where I did my PhD all in the context of astronomy and then back to Harvard uh, where I was a postdoc and uh, all the while working on uh, what we could broadly term time domain astrophysics, understanding uh, the variable sky and why things do what they do uh, explosively, cataclysmically or otherwise. Um, and while the, there's a deep interest in understanding the origins of those events um, and how they're connected to other things that we study in the universe, uh, I got more and more interested over time in the informatics of, of actually just doing the, the science, um, the statistics on, on variable sources and the presence of noise. And then as uh, I uh, became a faculty member at Berkeley, I uh, started looking ahead to uh, really a, a, a series of new um, surveys, uh, particularly imaging surveys of large swaths of the night sky. And one of the uh, great interests for myself and many others was in finding new events, uh, essentially new explosions or new variable eruptive stars that hadn't been known about before, and doing that as quickly as possible. Um, now, the traditional way in which that was done, and in some cases is still done today, is that as you acquire more data, you linearly hire more grad students. Uh, that scales with the total number of, of images that you're getting and you need to sift through. Mm -hmm. And uh, as I was uh, becoming involved in some of those projects, I wound up realizing that as time went on, that really wouldn't scale anymore. And we, we needed to find... Uh, effectively a replacement for domain experts who otherwise would have been looking at and opining on data uh, using alternate techniques. And uh, about seven, eight, nine years ago, I stumbled upon machine learning as a real interesting potential avenue. And at the time, uh, machine learning really hadn't been applied to anything in, in astronomy. Um, 
uh, in, in the variable sky and sort of in a time domain uh, context, there had been a number of studies in using machine learning to do um, special types of inference on the static sky uh, and understanding, uh, you know, sort of demographics of, of uh, stars and galaxies and their distribution in space. Um, so we really felt like uh, there wasn't a, a lot of um, uh, precedent in us applying some of the uh, capabilities to this data, but we wound up realizing it was sort of an imperative. Um, mm -hmm. And one of the things that people who know astronomers would probably say about them is they um, tend to like to use tools that help them um, and seek those tools out, uh, be those uh, new types of detectors. So C CCDs, for instance, uh, were something that astronomers adopted uh, almost as soon as they were invented. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and obviously statistical techniques uh, and computational techniques. Astronomers are willing to try things out to solve to solve their problem. The, the classic example I go back to is Galileo, who said, you know, hey, there's this new thing that's been invented to look at the uh, horizon for uh, ships coming uh, towards us. Uh, what if I just took it and pointed it to the stars? What could I do with that? And so our, our use of the telescope was essentially a co-option of uh, the use of a technology uh, that had been built for other purposes. And so that kind of proceeds apace throughout the history of astronomy. And so the idea of bringing a, a, a essentially a fairly new technique into the fold uh, is not at all unusual. Do you remember how you stumbled across machine learning? Yeah, so... Um, Part of it was just asking the question: If I've got a if I've got a bunch of data and I need to decide, you know, is this part of the sky interesting or not? Is is this event new or not? What what type of event could this be? Uh, very quickly, you wind up realizing this is a classification problem of some sort, mm -hmm. um, and. Uh, you know, talking to people at UC Berkeley in the stats department as I was starting to introduce some of these interesting challenges became very clear that machine learning uh, and uh, particular, particularly supervised learning would be a, uh, you know, a fertile ground for us to start exploring. But um, one of the challenges that I saw is that even though we're in a very rich and fertile environment in, at, at UC Berkeley and there's a lot of crosstalk between departments and individuals within departments, uh, it was very hard to get even the kind of the language uh, on both sides up and running where both sides understood the methodological folks who deeply understood what machine learning was and what it could be used for. And then people like myself from the physical side of even learning to ask the right questions. Um, so, uh, thankfully, we wound up getting uh, a group from the stats department and, uh, and those folks from computer science uh, together with uh, me and my, my postdocs, and we were able to get a proposal together, the National Science Foundation funded, that allowed us to basically start um, building out uh, new ways of doing inference on, on astronomy data. And that, that turned out to be a very fruitful place for us, for me in particular, to learn about the landscape of what other techniques were out there that we hadn't been taught in school. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about, from that initial discovery, what the research arc looked like? What were some of the first things you started exploring and how that evolved over time? Yeah, so I, I really just started looking at, um, you know, toy amounts of data that we already had in the can, um, and we could start applying these different techniques to, and looking for tools that uh, would be useful for us. And 
really the best thing out there at the time that we started was something called Weka, um, which was a uh, and still is a collection of uh, machine learning algorithms that uh, one can apply in a sort of GUI graphical way, um, mm-hmm. all kind of written in Java. And uh, really, that was our original playground and benchmark, um, and used that as a launching off point to start understanding what are these different modeling techniques that are being exposed here. What is a support vector machine? What does it mean when people say random forest? And right. use that as a way to sort of educate myself and, and those in our group. Um, and started seeing some interesting results, right? We started seeing accuracies that were better than what you could get from random. And then as we poked farther and farther, wind up seeing how far can we take these algorithms? How well does one of them work relative to, to the others uh, to get the kinds of answers that we want? How do we build in a loss function, um, which turns out to be very important to get uh, uh, good answers? Because in, in the case of what we did, um, when we're discovering something in the sky, um, it's not easy to articulate that loss function. And, and, and by that, I mean, uh, what is the cost of missing an interesting place in the sky? It means that you don't get to do new science um, versus what's the cost of saying everything in the sky is interesting, which means you burn all of your follow-up resources. Um, mm-hmm. And starting then to think about context-aware uh, classification, um, now just not in the, in, in the context of really just resources, but now time constraints, um, making, a, making an inference about something that could be of interest uh, may be more important than waiting to get another couple of data points and saying something with even more confidence. So understanding how to calibrate confidences and probabilities, um, doing this in the presence of sort of missing data and irregularly sampled data and time, um, all of these also started wind up uh, showing to us that there were parts of the machine learning um, sphere in the, in, at least in the academic world, that were not often exposed to the kinds of data that we were exposed to. Uh, and so noisy data, for instance, um, mm-hmm. no one ever, when they talk about the iris data set, they don't say, you know, the petal of this is red plus or minus purple. Um, so even just having uncertainties in your features, let alone your labels, uh, became an interesting challenge. And we wound up realizing perhaps there were some new techniques that we needed to start innovating on to even do the uh, kinds of inference we wanted to do with our data. Uh, so you mentioned the the loss function and needing to wrap your arms around uh, what that means. Can you uh, succinctly describe how you grappled that? What did you end up how did you approach it and what did you end up coming up with for the types of data that you were looking at? One of the things we wound up realizing is that one person's loss function is not the same as another person's loss function. And so to get traction on um, on your answers, um, one needs to at least be clear about what it is that you're optimizing for uh-huh. and uh, at least give people the ability to uh, imbue their own loss functions. If, for instance, you're producing a, a catalog of uh, different types of variable stars on the sky, um, we have a, a specific notion of what it means to get something wrong about, say, a very minority class versus a majority class. Um, and I, I wouldn't say that we solved that problem by any stretch, but at least we were trying to be clear about what our assumptions were of the loss function and articulate um, you know, what it is that we're optimizing for. Uh, you know, when people are 
are doing AI or, or machine learning in a production environment, uh, there is always going to be an optimization of, of, of some sort. And the typical one people will go to uh, without knowing exactly what the kind of business value is um, or, or scientific value is of the answer is you go for some notion of an accuracy. Um, and then when you get a level deeper in that, you say, well, what I really want to do is I want to minimize false positives at a false negative rate of 0.1. Um, and then that is an implicit statement of what your, um, of what your loss function is. And you hope that by defining it that way and by optimizing on it mm-hmm. that way, that you're actually getting very close to an optimization of what is, you know, the result of what you're, what you're emitting out of your, out of your modeling. Mm-hmm. And so you're you're primarily looking at image oriented data over time. Uh, are there other fields where you've seen them uh, adopt the same types of approaches uh, to what you were working with? Well, one of the nice things is you can work at the sensor level data, which is effectively photoelectrons in a CCD and counting those up as a function of position and X, Y, and then Mm -hmm. trying to map that back in the sky. So that's what you might call noisy image sensor data. Um, And we worked at that level. But then we also worked at a metadata level, which was now let's use traditional astronomy techniques to extract the brightness of a star as a function of time. And so we got ourselves out of the... um, out of the image plane and into the time domain. And then mm-hmm. we're basically working with effectively tabular data. And mm-hmm. again, um, you know, there are lots of different models and feature engineering approaches that one can take to all of that. Uh, I wouldn't say that there was a common thread in our work um, other than this, uh, across a bunch of these different sort of sub-questions, um, other than say that over time we wind up realizing that there were only really a couple of different machine learning models that did as well or better than everything else. And so even though, for instance, support vector machines are very popular because they have some great sort of theoretical provable properties, they tend to be kind of unwieldy. And for dealing with the kinds of data we were working with, which is heterogeneous, noisy, dirty, sparse, missing, and multi-class, where you needed to also get probabilities out that you could then calibrate, uh, models like sport vector machines really fall short for practical purposes. And so we wound up um, recognizing in our group, and I think that was validated um, in a conference that we ran at, uh, at UC Berkeley on essentially streaming inference with machine learning. It was a sort of week-long conference that involved folks from Netflix, folks from Google, um, and then domain experts, uh, you know, everything from biomedical to, to physics. Uh, a number of people would stand up, give their talk, and say, yeah, and we wound up realizing that Decision Forest pretty much always won. Mm-hmm. Now, this was in 2012 before the resurgence of deep learning. I bet if we ran mm-hmm. this conference again, half of the talks would be about how <laughs> that's uh, a, a, a better algorithm, as it were. Um, but it was pretty eye-opening, uh, and it was one of the things that we took to heart as we wound up starting the company is a recognition that to exceed uh, to produce value um, uh, sort of very generally, uh, the algorithm itself is not necessarily the key. In some sense, the way I view this now is that algorithms um, and their accuracy that they can produce and their ability to to optimize them around a loss function is really only table stakes 
um, for uh, the utility of these in in a real in a real environment. Mm-hmm. So yes, you need to use a model that's very very accurate um, and potentially can be retrained and get slightly better. But as most data scientists or most people that work in machine learning workflows will say, almost all of that work is in feature engineering. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're a deep learning person, you'll say almost all that work is in figuring out what the shape of the network should be and right. iterating over that. All right. Uh, on that note, before we jump into what you're doing at the company today, what were some of the results you saw out of your research on the astronomy side? So we we looked at a couple of different realms. Um, one was looking at uh, large catalogs of variable stars and coming up with probabilistic classifications of what type of variable stars they were, what was the physics that, that drove them. Uh, and we did that in a, a bootstrap way, starting with effectively a few hundred uh, known classes um, and few hundred or few thousand known labels and then extrapolated that to tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of variable stars and produced probabilistic catalogs. Um, one of the things I became adamant about as we were doing that was producing a catalog where you say, hey, this object in the sky is of this type with this probability is effectively useless uh, unless it's then used for some new kind of science. Um, and one of the things that I, I uh, became, I won't say frustrated with, but I noticed often is that people started using, not just in astronomy, but in many other fields, um, machine learning as an end to itself, saying, I'm going to apply machine learning to this data, and I'm going to get a result. Um, until that result itself is novel, or until that becomes a stepping stone to another result which becomes right. novel, um, uh, you know, it was it, it's sort of an empty exercise. Um, and so what we wound up saying is, what can we do with, with this probabilistic catalog that couldn't have been done with any other means? And so one of the things we did is we looked for very strange types of stars that had certain properties and then followed those up with big telescopes and actually wrote science papers with, with those. So we used that as a launching off point. Um, in a real-time environment where we actually were looking at images as they were streaming off of telescopes in, in uh, Southern California, off of uh, Palomar Mountain, um, every 60 seconds or so, it would basically get transferred up to Lawrence Berkeley National Lab, and we'd apply our machine learning to that to find new interesting objects in the sky, mm-hmm. and then populate databases of, you know, for tonight, here are the interesting objects, and then also had another machine learning code which would go into those databases and periodically make statements about what types of objects those wind up uh, might be, uh, what, what they could be. And um, we wound up having, I think, of order of 100, maybe 200 uh, papers that came out of that, okay. uh, refereed papers, which, again, the machine learning part of that was really the stepping stone to discovery. Uh, the other right. parts of the machine learning were the stepping stones to initial inference. And obviously, in the end, you needed people to to, to actually write the paper. Um, but it we all tried goes back to, to the grad students, right? What's that? It all goes back it to the It all goes students. back to grad students, exactly. <laughs> um, but I really thought about kind of removing people from the real-time inference uh, loop mm-hmm. and uh, getting as far up the inference stack as we could. 
Uh, we even got to the point where we were finding interesting objects in the sky without any humans in the loop, identifying that not only is it a new object, but it's something we probably should be following up. And we were issuing alerts to robotic telescopes to go follow those up. So by the time oh, people wow. woke up in the morning, we not only had the discovery, we not only had the in initial inference, we then also had uh, real follow-up, scientific follow-up. Um, one of the, I think, great... Uh, achievements of the work that we and, and others did in, in one of our collaborations was to to build this uh, production system that you know had real consumers on the other side of that, and when it was right. broken or was wrong or didn't take feedback properly, you know we'd get nasty emails from our collaborators and say your thing didn't work for an hour. You kind of screwed my science while I was at the telescope. So having um, having an end user really keeps you heavily focused on uh, making sure the things that it needs to do does it right and robustly. Yeah. Um, but because we were discovering things even faster than a whole army of grad students would have been, would have been able to pour over all of these images, we were able to find, for instance, the nearest um, Type 1A supernova uh, that had been found in 25 years and get a whole bunch of people looking at that part of the sky and taking lots of data. That led to a bunch of papers in nature and, and science. Wow. Um, not because that object wouldn't have been found by even amateurs, because it got so bright you could have seen it with uh, binoculars uh -huh. um, eventually, but because the interesting science happened hours after the event blew up, right? right. The event happened. And so... Um, it wind up also driving home for me the need for not only something that's working and is robust, et cetera, but where it's able to make statements quickly um, and do it in a way that's reliable. Interesting. Interesting. So I'm sure that that has led you to some interesting perspectives on the relationship between uh, this technology and, uh, and society and jobs and stuff like that. I, I, I'm hearing parallels to, you know, a lot of people um, kind of projecting that as AI is deployed, shifting shifts in the job market will take place that put a lot of people out of work. Um, but I'm also hearing in your example kind of the counter argument you often hear that really what it does is it empowers people and allows people to do uh, different things. And I don't, ne don't necessarily want to go deep into the society stuff. Uh, at this point, but yeah, I, it's 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 a it's certainly a valid concern. Uh, what we do in our company at Wise.io is help customer support agents uh, become more efficient at their work uh, by suggesting answers of how they can respond to an incoming inquiry uh, by automatically triaging. Um, uh, incoming inquiries or, or, or tickets, or emails, et cetera, uh, that is getting them to the right person or the right group who's going to be the best at answering that question. And then in some cases, uh, we will automatically respond to incoming inquiries. So when you write into an e-commerce site and say, my package didn't arrive, there's a growing chance that us or somebody else uh, may be answering what looks like a bespoke uh, question of yours with a, what uh -huh. looks like a bespoke uh, answer. Um, but in the end, it's just a templatized uh, response that we're, we ourselves are, are, uh, are, are using. For us to be able to do that, obviously, we can talk more deeply about how that works from an AI perspective. Um, we have to get very confident in what our answers are. But what does this mean? On one side to your question about labor displacement, 
um, companies don't need to hire as many support agents. Mm-hmm. Um, so where would they have gone? The other side of that is that the agents that they do have become better and more tuned at working in some of the harder parts of uh, what their, their own products are about and what their customer complaints are about um, in a way they wouldn't have been able to because they would have been distracted by the mundane. So if you say, mm-hmm. how do I uh, reset my password? And there's a person or sets of people that have to look at that email and decide how to right. respond. That's time that those people are not spending on really complex problems where empathy is required as well. Mm-hmm. So uh, we think of it as uh, as, uh, as our product and, and, and what we do as a way of um, freeing people to work on the things that people are uniquely suited at, that machines really aren't going to be that good right. until somebody solves, uh, you know, the Turing test. Um, chatbots are not going to be able to understand people in, in the subtle ways that they need to. But we can right. take a lot of easy stuff off the table. Uh, we have, and so there was certainly a concern as we were starting to roll this out that this we were part of this labor displacement movement. Um, but we heard time and time again from our customers that their support agents became more and more happy the more involved we were. Um, there was an entire team uh, in uh, in Asia who had been tasked with basically reading an incoming inquiry or a ticket and then deciding who else should be reading this to solve the problem. Mm-hmm. And because our our triage capability came into play, they effectively deprecated a 20-person team, uh, one of our clients, uh, off of triage because we're effectively automatically triaging now. And we were worried what's going to happen to these people. They have, right. they have families to feed. And we got a whole bunch of really great quotes from them saying because they had been reassigned to actually work these support tickets rather than push them along, mm-hmm. they were much more happy in their job. That's fantastic. Uh, so we jump right into what you're doing at wise.io, but the uh, the transition is a fascinating one as well. Uh, how do you get from astrophysics to uh, software company doing CRM stuff? And I know there was a, an intermediate step there as well. Yeah, so so um, going back to the original part of the conversation, we had recognized in the team that that uh, I had built and the people I had worked with that a we had some great sort of technical orthogonalities. Some were good software engineering, some at M- good at ML, some at UI, etc. Um, and B that what we had learned to do of recognizing the importance of putting. AI into production and having real end users give real feedback in potentially a real-time loop um, was something we, at the time, didn't see anyone else doing. Uh, Mm -hmm. We knew, obviously, that the Googles and the LinkedIns and the Netflixes of the world had this kind of baked into their overall data flow, but we certainly weren't seeing um, companies helping other companies do it. And one of my now co-founders had uh, more or less while he was uh, between jobs, figured out how to make one of the algorithms that we liked a lot, these decision forests, scale very, very well, at least on a single machine uh, in a multi-core environment. And so we realized that we might have some interesting firepower. um, And given that there seemed at the time to be so much emphasis on massive scale uh, machine learning. It was it was uh, certainly pre-Spark era, but was very much in the Hadoop heyday. Um, It looked like most of the interesting ML that was starting to come out and some of the other companies that were coming out were really focused around helping 
the, you know, I won't say exascale, but certainly petascale level, Google scale amount of data companies uh, bring machine learning into their into their workflows. So w- we thought about sort of skating to a place, you know, using the analogy that's heavily overused uh, to the, the part of the where the puck was going to be, which was helping smaller companies and mid-sized scale companies uh, bring machine learning into production environments. Um, and that was the impetus for starting the company. Uh, what the domain was going to be, we didn't know. Mm-hmm. Um, who the customer was going to be and who the buyer was going to be, we didn't know. Uh, we were, I'd say, blissfully ignorant about all of the business challenges that we would wind up encountering over the next couple of <laughs> years in bringing this to market. Right. And when we emerged out of um, our first accelerator, uh, I gave a talk at our demo day. It was the Alchemist Accelerator, where I said we're going to be GitHub for data scientists mm-hmm. and uh, produce some interesting UIs of interactions to help data scientists like ourselves uh, more easily build models that they could then push into a production environment. Mm-hmm. Um, we wound up seeing over that over the next couple of months the challenges of selling products like this into data science teams first data science teams were few and far between and the ones that existed were either too sophisticated to believe they could build it all themselves or not sophisticated enough to get a large enough budget to pay for the things that we wanted to provide them from a tooling perspective mm-hmm. um, all the while we were building out our uh, underlying platform to be able to do exactly that to be able to build templated machine learning models against certain types of uh, data for certain types of use cases. And then uh, even though you built it at a laptop level, push it into the cloud and have, you know, in, in Amazon or, or other um, compute uh, uh, frameworks, uh, the scalability to be able to serve large numbers of, of customers around those same use cases where what's emerged for us is the difference between a customer is not new code. It's just a config file if they're using that same use case. So um, all of that to say that we evolved, you could call it a pivot if you'd like, but I think of it as a series of, of pivots to a place where we wind up seeing in customer support um, a lot of data, mm-hmm. a lot of manual work, um, and uh, some really nice, uh, CRM systems with open APIs and a fairly fixed schema. So the Salesforces and Zendesk and uh, ServiceNows of the world uh, really are the data lake and the transactional layer for doing uh, customer support and related activities. And um, we thought if we could build now an intelligent system on top of that and do all the things that I mentioned, empowering these agents to become more efficient at their job and make the whole support desk more efficient at serving customers, um, we would solve a bunch of pain, pain points. And that, as we wound up going into the market and started leading with products that could be uh, more or less installed by a non-technical user and could be used by a non-technical user, wind up getting a lot of feedback that indeed we were solving some pain points. Um, there's obviously the efficiency question of, of needing less headcount, but there's also some really interesting customers of ours um, who are growing very quickly. Uh, and one of them uh, said to us that if the CEO had given him an infinite budget, he wouldn't be able to hire good customer support agents quick enough. Mm-hmm. Um, so helping them capture all the internal knowledge was something that it turns out uh, machine learning actually does quite well at. What were some of the biggest challenges in going from a 
product direction focused on generalized tools and platforms to one focused on a very specific uh, application area? I mean, interestingly, it was all the things that we hadn't thought about, which was product management and uh, <laughs> how do you get structured feedback uh, from customers? What what does it mean to build an MVP, roll that out, uh, iterate on it, et cetera? Um, a lot of kind of lean startup 101 stuff mm-hmm. was something that we hadn't really been thinking of uh, when we started the company and certainly didn't have, a, you know, frankly, a lot of expertise in. Mm-hmm. Um, and And then as we started scaling... Uh, it was a, a recognition that there are large parts of a machine learning uh, uh, pipeline that don't naturally scale. So figuring out ways to containerize the parts that need special attention from you know PhD levels in data science uh, and abstract that away from uh, other parts of our engineering group that don't need to know about what's happening deeply but need to be able to ask predictions of some other part of the stack restfully in a services-oriented way. Uh, We just wound up realizing that uh, what worked for us um, from a scaling perspective, compute scaling perspective, also wound up being what we needed to do from an organizational um, and HR perspective. Uh, When we hire front-end engineers and uh, and middleware engineers who are great at writing uh, uh, scripts against databases and uh, managing Redis queues, et cetera, those folks don't need to know about machine learning. They need to know that there is a contract between their part of the stack and um, and somewhere deeper in the stack that if I ask you for a prediction for this client, for this model, I'm expecting to get it back in this format on this timescale. Mm-hmm. And if I don't, then our contract's broken. But likewise, I'm going to hand to that deeper part of the stack that's going to be providing those predictions, uh, you know, effectively some data, JSON or otherwise, that will have a fixed schema so that the group that built that um, machine learning pipeline knows that, you know, this column is going to be of type date time, this column is going to be, uh, you know, an int, and it's going to join using these four indices on some other data. Mm -hmm. So once we wind up realizing that we could lock down uh, the schema for a given use case, it meant that we could write data science pipelines against data we hadn't seen before. Um, you need to see it once to make sure it's all working and, and make sure it cross-validates in an offline sense and it has the kinds of accuracy properties that you want. Um, but then it means that we could basically start spinning up new customers where they get the sort of base um, uh, template uh, that operates on their data. And uh, when we need to make changes, those can happen really from a more or less technical person than you know somebody with a PhD in statistics. Got it. So there were a bunch of challenges around that. And as we kind of started solving those, it just sort of fell out that our stack really mimics what our uh, organization looks like. Okay. Okay. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the the data that you typically see in a customer environment? I'm you know, imagining just loads of trouble tickets, but, I'm, but I imagine as well that there's ancillary data, supporting data as well, and... You mentioned that there's lots of it. Uh, can you talk about the, the size you typically see, those kinds of things? Yeah, so uh, 
our typical um, our typical customer is doing of order five to twenty thousand tickets a month. Okay. And uh, we need to be working with companies that are that are sort of achieving that level of, of volume. Uh, a because the price points are reasonably high, and so it's typically the companies that have those large volumes that are willing to willing to pay for what we do. Um, and and B because the machine learning models are uh, built specifically for and on their their data, and we don't use a common model, for instance, across our customers. So we need a lot of training data uh, for a given customer. Um, now this isn't again, this is not petascale amounts of data. Uh, we're talking sort of tens to hundreds of gigabytes, um, you know, at the per month level per customer. Um, the data is indeed a lot of human to human interaction from mm-hmm. emails, web forums, even chat. Um, and, uh, there's also a lot of metadata. So, uh, what is the value of this, uh, of this customer? What products are they using? Uh, how often have they been emailing? So there's a time series component to this as well. Um, and, you know, we've had to build these pipelines that are generic enough that we can then apply them to other use cases, mm-hmm. but specific enough that they give, you know, good enough accuracies that wind up rivaling what, um, uh, you know what humans can do, and so oftentimes our uh, our goal is to get to not we don't call it accuracy we call it uh, matching capability because mm-hmm. oftentimes when a human's labeling something and saying it belongs to this bucket or this person should answer it or it should have been answered with this template they oftentimes can be wrong so we want to get our, we've all had that experience we want to get ourselves to that kind of level of uh, of quality let's say. Um, so it's mostly uh, from a, from a featureization perspective. We're doing natu- lots of natural language processing, um, getting it to the point of uh, you know sort of rectangularized data where each row is a different instance um, and each column is a set of features, mm-hmm. and then we have a bunch of labels of what the answers are. So we're we're working almost entirely in a supervised sense where we know from past data, particularly closed tickets, what the actual right answer is, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got a couple of unsupervised uh, models that we also wind up running, uh, where we wind up discovering, for instance, um, that there is a, a grouping and semantic space of outgoing tickets, that is how agents are responding, that don't look like templates that are sanctioned by the by the company, which means that they're coming up with their own uh, templated responses um, mm-hmm. and potentially even sharing those with other agents. So we have a dashboard, for instance, we show our customers, the one, those running the support desk, uh, of potentially new templates that they can use. Because mm-hmm. obviously if there's a new issue, for instance, uh, with a product, then agents who are on the ground have to figure out a way to answer it. And if it's is a recurring problem within a couple of emails, they'll wind up essentially having the right answer that they've already pre-formulated. Right. Um, so that's an unsupervised problem. And do you see in that last example uh, a future place for generative types of AI approaches, or is that more? Do you think of when you hear that, is that like the technology you know looking for chasing the problem kind of thing? Yeah, it's a good question. We've shied away from the generative component, um, and in fact, we make that a big part of our sales pitch of to say you are a potential client. Uh, really know the voice that you want to speak in and speak with your customers. Um, and it's who is, who is it for us to come in and say, we're going to auto generate at the character level, you know, CNNs or something, mm-hmm. uh, a bespoke answer, uh, the way that, you know, Google inbox does well. If it gives you, you know, right. five, five different words, sure, I'll 
sounds good. I'll see you then. Or uh, how about Friday? Mm-hmm. Those are fine. Um, but because we're, we're really focused on not just uh, getting results into the hands of agents um, where they can actually see in a UI sense within the dashboards, they normally see what our predictions are uh, and consume it in a way that they like to. We also want to take a lot of these tickets off the table in an automatic sense the only way our customers get comfortable with that is if we're basically showing to them in an offline way, uh, here's our accuracies for these types of templates. So we're going to send every now and then somebody says, I'm very unhappy with what you've done. We're going to send thanks for your feedback when it should have gone a different path. Mm-hmm. But we're only going to do that, you know, 1% of the time at this, at this level of false, false positive. Mm-hmm. Um, and once we can do that, then our customers essentially can turn on a specific macro for us to auto-respond with. The idea that we're going to auto-respond without any agents in the loop to something mm-hmm. like that, to potentially irate customer, mm-hmm. is uh, is pretty challenging. Mm-hmm. So we don't uh, certainly won't so, rule it out, but we certainly don't think about ourselves as producing generative answers uh, in a bespoke way. We're just more or less turning all of our problems into multi-class classification problems of okay. what of the hundreds or potentially thousands of canned responses is the right one to answer with. Okay. And just so I understand the comment that you made uh, a, mi- a second ago, in terms of sending out a given response a small uh, percentage of the times, are you describing a, an error type of situation or are you describing um, a, a feature where you're explore- like an exploration type of feature? Uh, good, good point. So we try not to do – there's an ex- explore-exploit component to what we do in, right. a, in a multi-arm bandit sense. Um, that's typically not, you know, exposed or a knob that's tunable by our, our customers. Um, so that will happen. And some of that will happen naturally. Um, in the case of auto response, we hold back 10% of the ones that we're, we know what the answer is, or we believe we know with a certain threshold of confidence Mm -hmm. and then compare after the fact, whether an agent who wound up now having to see it, uh, because we didn't auto respond gave the same response we did. So there's mm-hmm. there's an exploration where with the agent's job is now to do the exploration implicitly. Uh, no, the, the, the one I was uh, pointing out is ones where we are essentially wrong. Yeah. Um, and that gets back to the question of the loss function of what does it mean to be wrong, right? right? If, if one of the canned responses is, I'm so sorry for your loss, I will refund your entire vacation, you know, in the amount of $10,000, uh, the cost of being wrong of that is very, very high. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if somebody is mad and says, my vacation got ruined because of something you did, I want my 10K back, and we say, uh, thanks for your feedback. <laughs> it's Being wrong on that side is not nearly as bad as being wrong on the other side of that. And so we give and empower our, our customers to basically make the decision about, you know, let's do the easy stuff where the cost of being wrong is not a big deal. But because... Uh, and that's for the automatic response, but for the recommended types of responses, if our first canned response is, here's your money back, and an agent looks at that and says, no, that's crazy, the right answer is farther down the list, mm-hmm. they'll select that, and that becomes the feedback that our model, you know, our models wind up getting better as they wind up learning over time. Mm-hmm. What are some of the most interesting challenges that you've run into in putting together this kind of hybrid you know, ML plus human solution. Like, um, you know, one of the things that pops to my mind is, you know, just user experience, user interface. Like, are there challenges there that um, are interesting or 
you know, or what surprised you the most in trying to field these types of solutions? Certainly, because this we're getting in, we're getting into the space and the face of of agents who do this all the time. Mm-hmm. When we first started releasing our products, we didn't have a good training program for them, and so mm-hmm. when they would see, even though what we thought was an intuitive set of responses in the form of widgets that would show up on their on their desktop, um, you know, they didn't know how to consume it and they didn't know how to use it as effectively as we thought they should. Um, you know, there's all the mundane stuff around UIs like responsiveness and mm-hmm. somebody saying, well, it doesn't look like your product's working because now there are no responses. And we'd say, well, that's because you've already responded and you're bringing up a new ticket. You bring up an old ticket that already has a whole conversation. And mm-hmm. we're only getting involved in, at least for now, in the first part of the conversation. What's the first response you should do? Okay. So then we weren't showing the results. And so how can we, uh, you know, modify our, our widgets so that the agents understand we're not showing it for a purpose it's not that our system is is broken um and then realizing also that many agents uh wanted parts of our ui that um and 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 ux more more generally that doesn't have any anything to do with ml um so they wanted keyboard shortcuts because we thought everyone (laughs) would just click on stuff but high velocity support desks want to just use the keyboard um, so having to build that in uh, for a set of customers because the essentially it was like the keyboard had some disease or the, the mouse had a disease on it. They didn't want to touch it. Uh-huh. Um, getting feedback from the UI itself back into our system, um, making sure that uh, we're getting the right uh, metrics back, making sure that the KPIs that we're measuring or that were aligned with the KPIs that our customers wanted. I think one of the hardest things for us, and it, and it frankly continues to be a challenge, is um, really just thinking about how fault-tolerant ML needs to happen. And again, mm-hmm. Google, going back to Google Inbox, um, for those of you that have used it, uh, it makes a couple of suggestions about how you could respond to a, a, an email. If you don't want to use those, you don't use it. So I would call that a great fault-tolerant right. uh, ML experience. Um, and the same thing in a, you know, spam filter, uh, within your, within your mail system, it'll say, we think this is spam. If it's not move it over. And then later on, we'll figure out how not to call these things spam anymore that are like that. Um, that sort of fault tolerance where you're also getting feedback either implicitly or explicitly is just something we've had to build up over time. But I think, uh, more broadly that, that kind of approach needs to be, uh, built into any AI system in a production environment. Unless the AI uh, outputs that you're building are going to be consumed entirely by machines, um, you need to have some level of uh, understanding of who it is that's going to be consuming it, what are their concerns, and how can they give you feedback uh, so that your models wind up getting better over time. Hmm. Can you talk a little bit about the algorithms that you're employing and the the tool chain, the um, pipelines, what does all that look like? Yeah, so we uh, we stay out of what we call the ar- algorithms arms race internally. A, we're not really <laughs> selling the, the platform to other data scientists, right. so it'll, it gives us the freedom uh, to focus on uh, parts of the of the pipeline that we, we find most important. Mm-hmm. Um, all of our um, algorithmic sort of learning parts and then prediction parts are built in C++. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
and then surface back out into Python, which is where the data science uh, team winds up working. We have our own notion of what a, a pipeline needs to be. Um, and the data science team works entirely within that, the, the confines of what that pipeline ought to be, which is some sort of pre-filtering. So, for instance, if, it, if a ticket uh, is uh, from a voicemail, don't predict on it or don't use it for a build. So, you know, get rid of those that have this in this column, this value. Uh, then there's the data transformation parts of that and the joining across multiple, um, across multiple data sets if that's needed. Uh, and then the featureization um, which will often use uh, open source tools for that in the Python ecosystem. Um, Pandas is a, we use very regularly. Um, and then once we wind up realizing that we've created a bottleneck, which typically will happen not so much in time, but in RAM usage, um, we'll wind up rewriting uh, other people's algorithms or code so that we um, create, uh, you know, a RAM efficient um, pipeline. And then once the featureization happens, uh, basically the learning winds up happening in the C++ layer. And we've built a whole bunch of hyperparameter optimizations and feature selection capabilities and then post-process uh, capabilities to get um, calibrated probabilities out of a multi-class problem. So we have... Um, a bunch of uh, pieces that we've been building up that are not in the open uh, world and it's something that we've decided not to open source for now um, that allow us to work um, efficiently. So we think of it as you know high-velocity data science and building out a template for the first time. Uh, but then because the models have to rebuild every single day for every single customer on you know cloud infrastructure, which is not super cheap, uh, we needed to um, make the cost of doing that as small as possible. Mm -hmm. And what we wind up realizing is that open source tools, um, you know, that that many people use, like the Scikit-Learns and um, and the Turi's slash Dottos of the world, uh, or even Spark ML, um, were vastly more costly to run, um, even if you mm -hmm. could do it in the same amount of time, which we, we think we're much, much faster than most of those tools, um, because of the RAM requirements needed on multiple machines or even a large single machine in Amazon, the cost of building a model just was X percent higher and X being, you know, in the thousands. Mm -hmm. um, so having a, a RAM efficient, um, speed efficient, uh, and obviously, again, getting back to the original conversation about Table 6, highly accurate uh, mm -hmm. set of algorithms which produce the kinds of answers we want that we could then get into and modify if we needed to was kind of where we went up settling as where we needed to spend our, our kind of R&D slash engineering time. Hmm. Now, one of the areas that many of the machine learning platform companies have focused on is uh, trying to close this gap between data science and production. Yep. And uh, in essence, eliminate the, hey, I've got this model that kind of works, throw it over the wall to developers uh, and have it implemented. And it sounds like uh, you guys have maybe embraced that uh, and you're um, using that as a way to uh, build out the models in C++ because for presumably for performance. Um, are there ways that you've then uh, compensated for that in terms of automation tooling or... Do you just accept that uh, or, you know, even, you know, we just have, you know, the best people on both sides of that fence that can deal with the, you know, the existence of the gap? Like, how do you maintain a level of um, 
uh, efficiency and innovation in terms of the, the development pipeline, not the machine learning pipeline, um, so that it all works for you. Yeah, so there's definitely this separation of concerns, uh, which, again, is both uh, uh, an organizational one and then is also a computational one. Um, to the level where we think uh, we often talk about what we call the organizational API of mm-hmm. who within this stack is the customer of who. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, for instance, the people who are the sort of core um, ML and algorithms folks in the company are working in C++ and surfacing the great results back in, into a Python layer. Um, their customer is the data science team. Mm-hmm. Uh, the customer of the data science team um, is the uh, the people we're working on our architecture who have to make maintain uh, you know this this scalable robust infrastructure um, and you know their customers are the people working in the middleware and their customers are the ones who are in the in the in the UI um, mm-hmm. and so each of them have a, a a set of contracts of what it is that each part of that stack is looking for and um, and how, in fact, they're supposed to engage with each other. Um, and that's become very, very helpful for us because, you know, what, what you find is that when you put somebody in a box, they figure out a way to innovate very highly within that box. So mm-hmm. if there is a very strong contract of what data is expected to come in and what data is expected to come out and everything in between there is really up to you to decide how to do this well and efficiently. Um, that's where, our, for instance, our data science team and our implementation team will wind up working and building out a new template. They can work at their laptop uh, or glorified laptop level on a, a, a toy data set, get mm-hmm. some confidence that the pipeline is working and offline accuracies look good and the whole thing is going to work. And they... Um, once they're comfortable with that, they literally are just pushing a new version of a of a Docker image into our registry, which then farther upstream from something they ever have to think about from a production sense, once a new build winds up getting kicked off for that customer for that type of template, the new the new image will just get pulled and it'll just get built with the config file for that customer. Um, and so the data science team can wind up working within their confines. And of course, we have a whole testing suite to make sure that if they build something new, they're not going to break something downstream from them, mm-hmm. um, to gain confidence in that. And then they're literally just pushing the results of what they're doing on a semi-weekly basis into the Docker registry. That becomes the latest template for, let's say, triage. And then all the customers in production are automatically migrated um, to that. So having the data science team be able to push stuff into production without having to be on the ops side of things nor mm-hmm. have to think about the architecture uh, has, a, has really freed us up um, in great ways, I think, to innovate. Mm-hmm. Um, and likewise, when uh, they need a new bell or, and or whistle from the, the core algorithm folks because they say this part of our entire uh, uh, build chain is really inefficient, um, they can ask of the people working on that to improve it. And they go through their own testing suite, and I think we're at 300,000 regression tests in our core mm-hmm. ML, um, where we're also testing against every open source algorithm um, on, on, on customer data to make sure that we're staying as efficient or more um, on all these different axes uh, before we cut a release. Then the data science team can just pull essentially Python egg from our registry and and mm-hmm. use that in their system. So having those separations has been uh, great. Um, obviously, if you're abstracting everybody from what the end uh, use cases are, there can be a huge danger. But it's the job 
of people like myself to make sure that everyone is 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 focused and innovating towards the the right set of goals. Mm-hmm. Oh, great, great! I'm glad that Docker came up. Uh, you guys publish uh, you publish and maintain a set of Docker images for data science tools. Um, I've come across that. Uh, my impression is that in general, Docker adoption within the data science machine learning community is not particularly high. Is that yours as well? I uh, certainly haven't heard of many other companies using it in the ways that we are, but mm-hmm. it seems like such a natural way to literally containerize uh, and abstract the work of one part of an organization from the other. So mm-hmm. long as they, you know, that container will respond with a slash build predict endpoint, you know, feedback endpoint, et cetera, in the way that everyone expects it to. Um, I think that's a, I think that's a wonderful way to do abstraction. Uh, so, and then obviously it also helps you wind up achieving um, scale because for us, Scale is not, you know, can we serve, you know, a, a billion of our customers with the same app? It's instead, well, we've got a new customer that we just spin up more containers to do the builds and the predicts right. for that customer. And if we need more compute capability, that's elastically scaling for us for free on right. top of Amazon. Um, so I think of it as a very natural way to separate concerns, you know, from a stack perspective and also a very natural way to do what is for a company that's serving lots and lots of customers a, a very uh, embarrassingly parallel type of, mm-hmm. of, of compute. Interesting. I got into a conversation on Twitter or Reddit or someplace where someone was kind of griping about the just the dependency hell with Python and Pandas and um, – trying to come to terms with managing different versions of, you know, different tooling versions and things like that. And I suggested, I might've even pointed to your Docker repository. Uh, and the response was, no, I want to make this simpler and not more complex. And huh. you know, obviously you find it to be simpler. Can you give folks that aren't familiar with uh, Docker and containers like your 30, se- 30 second, uh, you know, Docker for data science pitch and where they can learn more about it? Yeah. So, um, Docker is uh, a way of basically explicitly specifying what not only your, let's say, Python uh, requirements are, uh, which you can do with uh, a a simple file, but also what the entire OS shall be for running whatever scripts you're going to, you're going to need. And once you build that and, uh, you, you've, you're, you gain confidence that that, uh, image is doing what it, what it ought to, you can essentially very rapidly turn a container on that is the, um, is almost instant instantiation of that entire OS plus that script and all of the uh, dependencies built inside of that. And you can uh, hand somebody uh, a link to the uh, Docker Hub registry or if you maintain your own private registry, um, explicit URI to that explicit version of that explicit image and more or less guarantee that when they run that um, with whatever data is contained inside of that or whatever will be pulled over so long as it's the same, you'll get the same answer out. So I, I tend to think from a data science workflow and then getting back to you know just doing science more generally, mm-hmm. um, Docker is a very nice uh, 
framework for reproducibility. Hmm. Um, and so the idea that now I'm, I'm not, I don't have to share a, a machine with you or an Amazon machine image right. with you. I'm, I'm just handing you effectively a Docker file and says, if you run this, um, you're going to wind up getting the same answer that I got. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, because I don't think doing the types of work that we do in, at WISE and in some cases what we do on the science side of things uh, as the, you know, the, the, the final result is not uh, what comes out of the Docker uh, image or container. It's not, okay, here's a report of what my ROC curve is going to be, my false positive mm-hmm. versus false negative curve, uh, and then let me write a paper about that. It needs to be, for us at least, in a production environment, just now I've produced a prediction that now needs to get consumed by something that's farther downstream. So um, Docker is quite nice in that sense as well because you can also now connect Docker containers um, explicitly using something like a Docker Compose. Uh, there's many other tools out there as well. So that containers talk to other containers and mm-hmm. you allow each container to have, again, its own separated concern from the other ones, but still pull the results and push results to the other, uh, the other ones around. In addition, some containers can just contain data uh, and you can mm-hmm. build databases around that data. So now... Um, it allows you to build up a uh, very lightweight version of what might be your entire stack um, and do this in a way that's programmable. Um, so we found that to be incredibly useful for testing purposes. Mm-hmm. So is your GitHub the place that someone can go to learn more about what you're doing there? Or? Yeah, so we've got a public um, a Docker uh, a registry um, that you can go to the Docker registry and search for WiseIO, okay. or you can go to GitHub uh, slash WiseIO and see our other um, public projects that w- we've pushed out. Um, so there's one around Docker and data science, uh, which in that case, because we're not releasing any of our internal tools we've built, we're basically building up a container with open source um, tools mm-hmm. that we find are really useful for doing lots of different types of, uh, of data science. Um, the other uh, major project which we have up there in GitHub that's open is something we call Paratext, uh, which started as just sort of a um, uh, weekend hack from one of our engineers, mm-hmm. uh, Damien Eads, who wanted to see what it would be like to read data from disk uh, in parallel, mm-hmm. just to see what kind of speed ups you could wind up getting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it turns out pretty much every open source tool out there doesn't read in parallel. Um, And the ones that do are explicitly uh, parallelized like over multiple machines. But if you just made uh, use of the multi-core environment, how well would you get? And we wound up getting 100,000x speed ups over some of the other um, tools that are out there. Uh, And importantly, also use vastly less um, memory. That uh, Paratex is not yet in our production environment, but we thought it would be a good example of kind of showing off the philosophies that we we try to adhere to within the company mm-hmm. of creating efficiencies that isn't just the one thing like around accuracy, but uh, you know around how fast can you read data and how big is your model on disk. All these other aspects of what it means to do machine learning that has nothing to do with the algorithm. Once you're happy and you've reached some level of uh, plateau with the algorithm accuracy, all that you're left to do is optimize all these other pieces of of that pipeline. And Mm -hmm. so a lot of our engineering over the last year in particular has moved away from just optimizing accuracy to, um, you know, things like creating interpretability around the models that we, we, we build 
making the model smaller on disk, um, making the other parts of the featureization pipeline uh, be more RAM efficient. Um, and once you start sort of playing whack-a-mole with, let's just say, RAM usage, mm-hmm. you wind up finding really interesting parts of your entire pipeline that um, very few people wind up talking about. Just, you know, again, reading data, which is, should be the easiest part of right. your entire uh, uh, tool chain, um, is vastly inefficient. And, um, hmm. you know, whacking that mole, turns out you save a whole bunch of uh, Amazon costs because now you need a smaller RAM machine. That's great. That's great. Uh, you mentioned interpretability. Um, have you spent a lot of time uh, working on that? And what were the drivers for that? We have spent a lot of time on that. Uh, you know, it's sort of one of what we think of as our trade secret, uh, one of our trade secrets uh, around uh, getting back to the question of uh, UI and UX for end users. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we were asked often, at least in the early days, well, why are you getting the answer that you're getting? Mm-hmm. And you can't say, well, you know, it's a thousand-dimensional feature space and there's covariance between <laughs> all of these. And, you know, the model importances over the entire thing, you know, says that this is the most important feature. I don't know why we said for this one what the answer is. But that answer is what's called in in the financial services world reason codes. Um, Turns out to be really important. Some, some, Some places it's actually regulatorily required that you tell somebody why you got the answer that you got, even if it's a machine learning black box. Mm-hmm. Um, and so some of our early R&D effort was around how to make at the instance level, so an individual prediction level, how do we make these uh, um, uh, models interpretable by saying these are the important features and these are what's driving uh, this specific um, prediction. So. Um, as an example, if you're working on uh, customer churn and you want to predict is somebody going to churn in 90 days from now, it's a use case that we've we've also used on our platform, um, but not something we go to market with necessarily. Mm-hmm. Uh, two customers can have an identical probability of churning, but one of them may be churning because they haven't really used your product and they haven't done the training videos, and the other one may be churning because there's a high probability they're going to go bankrupt. Um, in the first mm-hmm. case, that's something you can do something about. Mm-hmm. And the second case, you know, you're kind of SOL. Okay. Um, and so even though they're identical in what their predictions are um, and, their, and the probabilities of those predictions coming to pass, um, one is actionable and one isn't. And so it's not just people gaining kind of a warm fuzzy about why did you get these predictions and does it jive with my, you know, feeling about why that, that could be okay, which is – critically important. It also then starts tying into next best action. And uh, because I think, again, an important part of machine learning and production is to drive value. If the value isn't the prediction in and of itself, then the prediction in and of itself is really just there to drive the next thing that happens. Mm -hmm. Um, And so next best action uh, is heavily coupled with you know the the importances around which features are are driving the the prediction. Okay, um, you mentioned value, and that's a great transition to one of the things that I really wanted to dig into with you, and that is the this blog post that you wrote about cost optimized AI that I've incidentally mentioned on the podcast a couple of times. Um, do we have time to go into that? Uh, of course. Uh, so. 
I guess the first, you know, it's it's actually come up several times in uh, our conversation already. This notion of cost and value, uh, but was there a specific uh, thing that prompted you to? I really got to write this down now. What drove that? Uh, so that was a bit of an intellectual journey. Um, uh-huh. I I was wondering, to be really frank. Why the hell are all these companies building these neuromorphic chips and all these specialized <laughs> hardware uh-huh. to do deep learning where, where, you know, because I think much of the world's data and much of the world's value in data is tied up in, I'll use the word, or quote unquote, small data or medium data, and not mm-hmm. massive scale, Google scale data, or Facebook scale data. I, I was wondering why all these people are starting to build these very specialized pieces of hardware uh, when, you know, deep learning, I think, magnanimously, uh, one could say, or charitably, is incredibly good at a large number of uh, of inference problems, um, mm-hmm. but not very good at a large, probably even larger space of inference problems um, mm-hmm. that may be changing over time as people start applying it to these new realms. Um, but the place where deep learning winds up shining is in uh, really large amounts of data, right? Because effectively what you're doing is turning millions or even billions of knobs to optimize a model. Right. And to do that credibly without overfitting, one needs lots and lots of data. So so I wind up asking this question of myself, why are people doing this? Um, mm-hmm. And why isn't what we already have out there and even just the GPU land good enough. And if you look at the, uh, the, a plot, which I have in my blog post of the efficiency sort of gigaflops per watt, right? Which is mm-hmm. something of, if I put this amount of energy in, which has this amount of cost, how many computations can I get out? That efficiency has been growing over time. Um, but it's nowhere near what some of these other, chips or these specialized pieces of hardware can do for these specific types of calculations. And those themselves are nowhere near what the human brain can do, right? Which is of order, if I remember right, about 10 to the five gigaflops per watt. So your, mm-hmm. your brain is a, you know, 30 watt supercomputer, right. uh, un, unrivaled, at least for now, by anything else that's out there. And anything that else is out there is likely going to take megawatts or hundreds of megawatts to get anywhere close to the, the computational capability. Incidentally, I don't know if you've come across it, but there there's a parallel to using DNA for storage and the the storage density per uh, per unit energy is incredible in DNA. Yeah, something like, you know, the the drop of a of a, you know, in a t- teaspoon or something, it can take all the world's data. It's it's it's, yeah. in, it's incredible. Um so, so getting back to this, you know, that's an obvious that's an obvious one, and I, I started thinking about it when AlphaGo um, had okay. uh, its big um, set of results, uh, the national or international championships, and you wind up looking at the computational capability that it took to win those um, those competitions. It's just huge, thousands mm-hmm. and thousands of computers, thousands and thousands of GPUs, the amount of power required there. Uh, was several orders of magnitude larger than what was going on in, uh, you know, the, 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 the champion's head that mm-hmm. they was playing against. So I was thinking about that sort of vast gulf and wound up realizing that the companies that are pushing towards these specialized pieces of hardware is because they realize that 
for a given amount of time and a given amount of data, because these algorithms are all basically saturating on near-perfect answers, uh, the only thing left to do is to get more uh, energy-efficient um, machine learning. Uh, for building and, and that the step after energy efficiency when it comes down to it is really cost efficiency. Um, and, and so my, my, my takeaway on, on that part was that people are building these chips because that's sort of the last frontier of squeaking out and eking out the last amount of dollars, uh, coming out of the system for the number of dollars going into the system. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, Taking a step back from that, I wound up realizing that, uh, or, or at least realizing for myself, and it's probably obvious to most out there, that because machine learning is optimization, that you're, a, a good optimizer will find the optimal answer by definition, that if you're not writing down your, uh, your, the function that you're trying to optimize um, to get a minimum of or maximum of uh, in terms that actually matter, then you're creating, by definition, a sub suboptimal answer or, or, mm-hmm. or system. And now that system doesn't just involve, you know, is my algorithm more optimal at getting an accuracy better than yours, but now mm-hmm. translating the accuracy into, well, let's go back to our loss function. What's the cost of being wrong, you know, and saying this thing is uh, A and this thing is B? Mm-hmm. Um, translating that to a business term is something that's critical, and almost everybody knows that that's, that's uh, important. But then you wind up realizing, well, um, if I'm going to build a model, what if it takes me 12 days to build one of these models right. to get an accuracy which is only epsilon better than one that takes me 10 seconds? Uh, and what if, you know, I can build a model that may take 12 days and the accuracy is much higher than one took me less time, but uh, the labor costs are very different. So I had to spend more Mm -hmm. data science time building one versus the other. And what about the opportunity costs of those data scientists not working on another problem in your business that may be more important? And when you wind up couching the problem that way, um, you get out of just, again, focused on accuracy in the algorithm to what is my cost of doing the entire pipeline? And now the entire mm-hmm. pipeline isn't just running a, a, a machine learning model in production for this specific use case, but how does that couple to all the other things you're doing in your business? Mm-hmm. Um, are you hiring a data science team to do this and then paying pensions? Or right. are you going to do a third party to do this and just write a check one time? Um, and then, you know, what are the societal benefits of all of this? Right. And, you know, it becomes unwieldy at some point if sure. you're actually being very honest about what's the cost of doing this. But at least if people, I just wanted people to start thinking about, as we've started thinking about within our company, that accuracy is the table stakes. And let's assume that you all have your good algorithm that's going to do well. Mm-hmm. Is it going to have strong scaling properties so that if you needed to get the model built, uh, you know, in X amount of time, that you could just have n number of machines that get you x divided by n amount of time on the clock because maybe you need that model built very quickly, very often. Right. Um, and then you know questions around the pipeline and and RAM usage and AWS costs. In the end, as a as a small uh, startup, uh, when you start getting down to the brass tacks of what's our revenue um, and what's our cost of goods sold, what's our cogs. The COGS component is really what does it cost to build a model and predict? And 
until we were able to boil down the fact that our, the cost per prediction for one of our customers is X and we're going to be making X times some number, mm-hmm. um, you know, everything else is sort of moot. If you're losing, you know, every time you make a prediction effectively hand over fist, uh, then you've got something wrong that's unsustainable. Mm-hmm. So I, I started thinking about it as we were going through the exercise of what's our cost of doing business. And the cost of doing business is running an AI system in a cloud with real customers. Right. Um, and the labor part we can get, but all the other pieces, in the end, there's an Amazon bill. Mm-hmm. And because we put it all inside of Amazon, you know, and we know how much money we're taking in, we can see how those two things relate to each other. Mm-hmm. So you, you started with the question and, and kind of ran through the thought exercise. What's next there, whether it's you or someone else that does it? Do you... Do you see this evolving or uh, you know co-evolving with someone else thinking about you know analytical frameworks for thinking about this or you know tools you know whether that's a, a spreadsheet or um, you know it almost lends itself to machine learning algorithm yeah. trying to figure out how to deploy resources to you know do the machine learning yeah right? it's a it's a great question and you know one of the nice things about blog posts is you admit it out to the world and you hope somebody <laughs> runs you hope somebody runs with it. Um, it's been helpful in focusing for me and my own thoughts and as we drive those sorts of efficiencies in, in our company. And then again, more broadly, um, you know, in doing science, doing astrophysics, uh, choosing the right tools, um, choosing the right, uh, skill sets and people, choosing the right problems to work on or not work on. Mm-hmm. Those, those are very obvious, uh, uh, sort of outcomes from um, me having thought about it and framed it that way. One of the challenges is, and I think people may wind up being able to pick uh, pieces up of this uh, and work with it, is coming up with articulations of um, essentially what is the conversion term uh, between that item in the in the entire optimization uh, uh, equation and dollars. Mm-hmm. So one I'll throw out there that I don't know the answer to is, uh, what's the val- dollar value of interpretability? Mm-hmm. Um, and once somebody starts getting some handle on that, then optimization takes its wonderful, you know, uh, toll or, or approach, uh, or at least shall lead to a great outcome, which is, you know, once you, once you can really put a dollar cost to all these different pieces, mm-hmm. then I think you can do a real honest to goodness optimization. So I know what the dollar cost, for instance, of needing a RAM machine of this size versus that size on Amazon. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. Um, but what's the real dollar cost of, and can I know what, how much time it's going to take for a data science team to build up this template from scratch and then push that into production? Uh, and how many people do I really need on that? Is it good to have one data scientist or multiple ones, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so all those things, I think, wind up becoming really interesting over time uh, once people wind up potentially even wind up agreeing upon what this equation, what's in band for this equation and what's right. not. Obviously, out of scope is, uh, you know, what's the probability <laughs> that, you know, my machine learning algorithm is going to start World War III. Right, right. Probably not worth talking about, right? right. But something smaller than that, uh, smaller in scope at the company level, um, is probably worth starting to get some clear understanding around. So now we've maybe come back full circle to graduate students. It sounds like there are a lot of interesting uh, research projects, research questions in here for a PhD student or something. Yeah, I think in the, <laughs> it, you know for 
for those in computer science thinking about systems optimization mm-hmm. uh, who are also interested in machine learning, this is um, hopefully some fertile ground to start to start thinking. Um, the other statement, which hopefully is clear from what we've been talking about, is that doing machine learning for machine learning's sake really doesn't make sense. It's mm-hmm. it's probably the last thing you want to do if somebody hands you data. Uh, <laughs> it, 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 you do it because you have to do it. It's painful. Mm-hmm. And to run it in a production environment, um, given all the crazy bugaboos that um, – Many many people have talked about. There's a great paper from the folks at Google by uh, D. Scully is the first author, called uh, "Machine Learning is the High Interest um, Credit, card, credit or... card of Technical Debt." That came um, up on my last interview. As well. Yes, I'm not, not surprised. <laughs> it, it's an important paper. It's got I think no equations in it, but it's a mm-hmm. whole bunch of uh, important lessons about how uh, machine learning uh, systems tend to be very different than typical engineering systems. Um, so. So, so there's a lot in there uh, to get right, a lot of bugaboos there that people who haven't done this before tend to get wrong. But what you wind up realizing is that once you realize machine learning or, or more broadly AI is the right set of tools to apply to the problem uh, that you have, what you'll often wind up finding, I think, is at the graduate student level mm-hmm. um, in terms of graduate student projects they could be working on, is that it's still very much early days for the for the types of algorithms, pipelines, et cetera, in dealing with real world data. Mm-hmm. Um, I've often said to my my colleagues uh, on campus that um, real data is not doing uh, sentiment analysis on Twitter, mm-hmm. right? And yet, many 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 papers saying my scaling algorithms better than your scaling <laughs> algorithm. Uh, will wind up using that as a toy data set. The real world is not uh, toy data sets. Mm-hmm. Yes, we need to have benchmark data to, to have a lingua franca of who's doing better in these different axes. Right. But when you wind up getting exposed to real questions, uh, you wind up realizing that all the stuff that people know out there in the academic world that people write about and do Kegel blog posts about are not what you really need if you're being truly honest about what needs mm. to get optimized. Mm. That's great. So how does one manage... Being CTO for a, you know at a high growth startup and you know being a astrophysics professor, it's it's becoming increasingly common to see folks, particularly in the machine learning community, have uh, professorial posts and do um, academic or do uh, you know work in these research labs and things like that. But yeah, so I I uh, have been on a what's called an industry leave for okay. for a number of years, um, and so it's allowed me to have also that separation of concern. So uh, <laughs> so uh, not getting not getting paid by the university, not having yeah, uh, yeah. healthcare has made it easier for me to spend all my time as need be on the uh, on the on the company, um, while still maintaining. Uh, the kinds of links that I think are important um, as I, you know, start thinking about coming back into the university setting. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, a number of things I've picked up in management, th- you know, ideas and mm-hmm. and, and capabilities, um, and then also thinking about how to evaluate uh, new technologies. When is it appropriate to bring this into your toolkit, or when is it appropriate to wait? Mm-hmm. Um, those become really practical uh, uses that you know, I can take, I can take with me, but then also again, recognizing that, as I was saying before, there's a whole, uh, interesting set of problems out there that are not being addressed by, um, pure academic R and D research. Right. 
means that I can also start, uh, you know, looking for those white spaces to actually do some pure academic research mm-hmm. around those. Um, I'm particularly interested in questions around interpretability and how mm-hmm. you put metrics on interpretability. Um, and that's something that I think I benefit from having come from, uh, you know, felt the pain of customers asking about that. Right. Um, that, uh, you know, at least have a fresh lens on that. Mm-hmm. Doesn't right. mean I'll solve any of those problems, but at least I'll I'll have a direction of, of potential interest. Um, so it's uh, it, it's certainly a challenge, but I think uh, despite the challenges, the the benefits to both myself, the company, and the university, and my students at the university uh, are are uh, far outweigh all the gray hairs that I wind up um, getting. <laughs> I'm I'm teaching a uh, data science. Um, class, essentially a Python ecosystem data science class right now. It's uh, aimed at uh, graduate students. And the things that I've seen in the, uh, in the business world have really helped me uh, hone that, that class. And That's I'm great. directly giving back to the students uh, from, the, from those learnings. And is that a MOOC or is that available only to... Uh it is not students. a MOOC. Um, other incarnations of that class that I've done in the past uh, are probably online somewhere in the iTunes <laughs> sphere or elsewhere. Um, that can also be found on uh, GitHub, all the material. Uh, okay. And then we'll hopefully post some of the of, of the lectures online as well. Okay, great. Uh, so if folks want to learn more about the, the company or get in touch with you, what's, what are the best ways for them to find you guys? Um, easiest is uh, drop me an email. Um, and you can find that by Googling around. Uh, um, so I'll, I'll, I'll add that as a little bit of a bar that if you really want to find me, you'll have to, you'll have to do a little bit of work. Uh, you can tweet at me. So that's prof JSB, uh, mm-hmm. is my Twitter handle. And, uh, and we can do a, a, a direct message. Um, maybe that's probably the best way to, to get at me. Right. Great. Uh, well, I really appreciate you taking the time. It's great to finally meet you in person, and uh, I really enjoyed the conversation. I think folks will, will will enjoy it as well and get a lot out of it. Great. Well, thanks so much. Thanks for your interest. Great. Thanks. All right, everyone. That's it for today's interview. Thanks so much for listening. I haven't asked you all to do this in a while, but if you enjoyed this episode of the show, please, please, please do these two things. First, share it with your friends on Twitter, Facebook, good old email, or however you share cool things with your friends. Second, reach out and let me know how you like the show, who you'd like to hear on it, and how I can make it better for you. You can reach me on Twitter at at TwimmelAI and at Sam Charrington. And you can email me directly from the contact page on the twimmelai.com site. Thank you so much for your support and catch you next time.